The following is a breakout session from the 2014 Acts 29 conference in Dallas. Given the interactive nature of breakouts and Q&A, there may be extended periods of silence. Um, so the first one is churches planting churches, and then the second one is multi-site, uh, moving from multi-site, moving to multi-site, all of those things, and it'll be more of a panel discussion. So this session is actually planting churches out of your church. How, how do you do that? What does that actually look like? What do you need to be thinking about for that to happen? We're a network that says we're churches planting churches. And um, so we're going to talk about what that actually means and what it looks like. So uh, Pastor Joseph Turner is uh, the pastor at uh, our church that kind of oversees and, and runs the staff and runs everything. Before he was at our church, he planted a church in uh, Houston. He's at our church for a few years, and then probably in a few years, he will go out and plant another church. And so he's, uh, he's specifically gifted in this. He runs our church planting residency at Livingstone's Church. He's, what do you got, seven or eight residents right now? Seven residents right now that he's coaching and leading through that will hopefully send out to plant uh, from our church as well. So if you guys will welcome Pastor Joseph Turner. Hey, so it's a joy to be with you this afternoon. Um, after having lunch, I hope that you guys are all um, appropriately stimulated. And what I mean by appropriately is your belly is full, but you are not going to fall asleep. Uh, that's my hope. Um, so hopefully you also had uh, afternoon stimulants such as coffee or Coke or something of that nature. Uh, nothing illegal, of course, but uh, hopefully you had something to wake you up a little bit. And if not, then uh, I am going to basically be delivering this talk in some ways standing out on the edge of the plank, okay? And here's what I mean by that. When I'm talking about I'm delivering this talk standing out on the edge of the plank, I realize that I am probably going to say something within the first 10 minutes of this talk that may want to cause you to just put the sword in my chest and push me right over the edge, okay? So I'm delivering this talk from standing off the edge of the plank. You can decide at the end whether or not you want to invite me back on the ship and call me a brother. How about that? Uh, you're like, what are you talking about? This, we're talking about church planting. How could it possibly be that controversial or controversial? Well, let's get into it. We'll find out. Um, so I'm here to talk to you about churches that plant churches that plant churches. So planting church planting churches. Now, before we get into that, uh, let's, let's go ahead and talk about the context in which this message is being delivered, the conference in which this message is being delivered, okay? So I'm delivering this message at an Acts 29 conference, right? Acts 29 is a church planting network. That is our motto. It has been from day one, that we are a church planting network. And more specifically, our mission statement is churches planting churches. That is the conference that we are at. Now, the context in which this is being delivered is inside of a network that actually does very little church multiplication and reproduction. One of the things that we do really good as a network in regards to church planting is we partner with church planters, right? We partner with church planters. We partner with church planters that have somehow emerged, probably in some other greenhouse, but yet have been transplanted to our front doorstep as if it was a gift. And what are they doing? They're saying, assess me, let me in, <laughs> and fund me, get me up and off the ground. That's kind of what we do in Acts 29. That's what we've done well, is we have brought guys into the network. We have assessed, we've either affirmed or critiqued their desire to plant a church and then coached them after that, um, or just outright told them they shouldn't plant a church. But we really don't have a strong legacy, and I can say this with confidence after speaking with many board members and uh, hearing lots of stories, we really don't have a legacy of churches that actually reproduce churches from within, churches that, that give birth to new churches. And so I'm delivering this message on churches that plant churches at a conference that is all about church planting, and I want to make it clear that what I'm going to challenge you to do is actually plant churches. And, and I know, and, and I'm talking, again, not just partnering with churches, not just assessing church planters, not just recognizing a church planter when they arrive on your front doorstep, 
but actually becoming a church planting multiplication engine. And so, before we do that, though, I want to talk with you about why do we do this. Um, what is the theological foundation for planting a church? It's really simple. I'm gonna, and of course, there are many, many, but I'm just going to go to one of the most obvious. Um, Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples, right? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I'll be with you even to the end of the age. Well, Jesus told his disciples to make disciples, and if you read the book of Acts, clearly the disciples believed that in order to make more disciples in a particular region, in a way that was long-term and sustainable for that region, they needed to plant churches. So the disciples received their command from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, go and plant churches, go and make, disi- or go and make disciples of all nations. And then the disciples then, you read through the book of Acts, you give it a good reading, how did they interpret that? Well, they went and made disciples, but they also planted churches. So there's, there's a correlation in between disciple-making and church planting. Everyone agrees that the mission of Jesus, one of the primary things that Jesus given, has given us, is disciple-making. Somewhere in between agreeing upon that, though, and then actually coming to the outworking of planting churches is where we, we, we lose some clarity on the why. And so I'm going to labor the why a little bit more. Acts chapter 14, um, we're going to start in verse 19. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, it's fine. I'll read as clearly as I possibly can. Um, Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 19, we're going to read about uh, a portion of the apostolic church planting ministry of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. And uh, I, I think there's a pattern laid down for us in the New Testament that we should really kind of zero in on. So, Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 19. Now, this is after Paul had already had a hard time uh, at Iconium and Lystra, and now here he is uh, again. We pick up the story um, in verse 19, Paul, uh, the story of Paul. Here we go. Acts 14, beginning in verse 19, reads like this. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul And dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So I think this is an important pattern laid down for us in the New Testament. We know, uh, I mean, hopefully we know about prescriptive, descriptive texts and all of those things. I think this is descriptive, um, but I think it's a pattern that we should perhaps learn from and observe. So the Apostle Paul rolls into a town. What does he do? He preaches the gospel. We say all the time when we're talking about planting churches, what we're really doing is we're planting the gospel in a particular community or city. So that's what Paul does. He rolls into a city, he preaches the gospel, and as he preaches the gospel or shares the gospel, if you will, don't necessarily think that he's doing this from a stage like this, um, as he shares the gospel, preaches the gospel, he makes disciples. Preach the gospel, make disciples. The next step is strengthen the souls of the disciples. Then the next step is establish elders. Now, do you know what that looks like? You know what that sounds like? Church planting. That's what you do when you plant a church. You roll into a context, you start preaching the gospel, you share the gospel, you make disciples, you start strengthening the souls of those disciples, you grow into maturation, you develop elders, you appoint elders, right? In, in your church, your self-governing, self-propagating church at that point. And so this is a pattern that, that's laid down for us right here in the book of Acts. Preach the gospel, make disciples, strengthen disciples, appoint elders plant churches, and this is what the apostles did. They did it over and over and over again. And this is the pattern that eventually saturated the Roman Empire and made the gospel of Jesus non-ignorable, right? Over the course of 300 years, by the time we get to Constantine. This is the pattern that the disciples repeated over and over and over and over again. Roll into a place where the gospel is not being preached faithfully, preach the gospel. Make disciples, strengthen the souls of the disciples, grow them up into maturation, develop elders, appoint elders, and then move on. Repeat. 
They did this over and over and over and over again until the entire region was saturated with Christ-exalting churches, declaring the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, making the gospel non-ignorable. So it's churches that planted churches that caused, and this is where it gets a bit controversial, that caused the evangelistic impact of the apostles to endure beyond their lifetime. It was churches, sorry, I don't know what I'm doing. I guess I just can't touch my derriere there. Um, It was churches, or it was disciples going into a town and planting churches that caused a gospel legacy to last and endure beyond their lifetime. All right? We need to build an enormous amount of momentum and movement in the realm of church planting if we're going to establish a gospel legacy in our region. Okay, an enormous amount of moment uh, of momentum and movement if we are going to establish a gospel legacy in our region or our nation that lasts beyond our lifetime. One of the things that, that church planters and pastors get caught up in, which I don't think is a bad thing whatsoever because it's certainly a command given to us in the scriptures, is we get really caught up in our pulpit ministry. And we neglect the apostolic side of the ministry. And I'm not up here talking about you, talking about apostolic ministry in the real kooky way that some of the missional guys are talking about. If you're into the kooky stuff, cool. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about raising up and the sending of new church planters. We love to exalt, the controversial part, we love to exalt the theological strength and girth that the Apostle Paul brought right, into the world. We love to exalt the radical expansion and evangelistic ministry of the apostles. And we get to say, this is what God gifted me as a preacher, so I'll preach sermons. God has gifted me as an evangelist, so I'll evangelize. God has gifted me as a systems guy, so I'm going to build systems. But if we're really honest with ourselves, it, it can be easy for us to neglect the fact that faithful pastoring in a local church context, should certainly involve reproducing yourself, and it should certainly involve planting new churches. Because the Apostle Paul did it all. I mean, he didn't say, wait, apest, what am I? Apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, right? I mean, we kind of see the guy functioning in all of them at different points. Um, we like to try and classify ourselves and then essentially move away from other things. I'm, I'm essentially calling everyone in this room, if you're a senior pastor, pastor executive pastor, team What does it look like for you to actually invest heavily from here on out, not just in your pulpit ministry, not just in the preaching, not just in worship, not just in community groups, not just in all of the things that really get our time and attention. What does it look like for you to begin to invest very aggressively into the raising up and developing and sending out of new new church planners and pastors? What will that kind of faithfulness and commitment look like for you, for your church? As church history shows that church planting movements typically follow outbreaks of revival or reform. Is it not connected all the way? Check one, two, one, two. So church history shows that church planting movements typically follow outbreaks of revival or reform. Now, after church planting movements have kind of effectively permeated a region and churches are then established, one of the things that you do, or one of the things that has happened in church planting movements is that structure and hierarchy are formed to really foster the movement, to mature the movement, right? Because it's, it's new, it's immature, there's a lot of immaturity, so we create hierarchy, we create leadership, uh, we create structure to really kind of mature and nurture the movement. But one of the things that happens after we begin to instill and introduce structure and hierarchy is that stagnancy can start to creep in as well. Because we settle into a rhythm and pattern of things, uh, life kind of as normal. It's, it's, it's what we do on Sundays. It's what we do in community groups. It's what we do in kids ministry. It's what we do here. It's what we do here. It's kind of, we kind of settle into a pattern and then we just make tweaks along the way to get more effective at what we do. But if we're not careful, that's where stagnancy begins to creep in. And here's the deal. Stagnancy is not only a danger in 
apostolic church planting movements and really multiplication movements, although you see that throughout church history, that stagnancy typically does creep in after you have a great movement of God. It not only happens on a, on a macro level, it does happen on a micro level as well in our local churches. Um, we can lose that kind of aggressive zeal, missionary zeal, if we will, to continue reproducing, multiplying, and sending out. And if you're a church of 800 to 2,000, you might be at 800 to 2,000 because you grew really rapidly, or maybe you grew kind of steadily over time in like a five or 10 year period, or maybe you, you, it took you a long time to get to this place, maybe 15, 20 years, I don't know. It, it could be that, um, or it could be shorter. But one of the things that we really have to fight against is that, uh, that tendency to become so focused on what's happening inside our church and getting better at how we do church that, and, and the, the influence that God has given us within our church that we stop looking outward in regards to starting new expressions of God's church. That is a tendency. Um, it's not just, see, here's what happens in church planning. I know this because I used to pastor a church that, you know, it was small and then we reproduced ourselves and then it kept growing and all of that. Um, but small church guys say, I can't plant new churches because I don't have the resources. And you run into a lot of times, a lot of times large church guys who have a lot of resources also aren't reproducing though, but that's because their eyes on a different ball. So I'm looking across our network right now. There are big churches. I mean, big churches, multi-million dollar budgets that really haven't really reproduced many churches, many church planters. And then you've got small churches that have not done that. And you've got middle-sized churches that haven't done that. And this, this group that we're in right now, 800 to 2,000, I mean, we're certainly not in the smaller range anymore. Um, and 2,000 is technically a mega church, although I know leading a church of 1,000 certainly feels like you're leading uh, a mega church. It gets that complex. But what does it look like for us to re-engage and reinvigorate ourselves through the power of God's Spirit to imagine what it would be like to actually lead a church-planting movement and be a part of a church planning movement? And how do we actually engineer and organize our churches to do that? Because if you experience explosive growth for a while, like I said, you'll, you'll build the structures and systems to control the chaos. But eventually that growth slows down. It will slow down. Eventually, the rapid, explosive growth that you are experiencing, and maybe aren't experiencing, but some of you are, is going to slow down. And when it slows down, we keep doing the same things that we've been doing. We keep tweaking. We keep getting better. But what do we find? The momentum that we once enjoyed is now gone. And we are in, a, you know, to use church growth terminology, we've plateaued. Or maybe we're not plateauing, but we're kind of doing the slow creep upwards or maybe the slow creep down. But the momentum's gone. And when the momentum's gone, the possibility of leaving a lasting gospel leg legacy oftentimes leaves the building with it. And what I mean by that is this. If we're going to avoid the stagnancy or the plateauing that, we're current, that, that is coming for us, because I'm serious, just look at it. Aside from a few churches in the world, no church continues to do this for 10, 15 years, 20 years. Eventually, you get here. Even if it's at 40, 50,000, you get here. I know I'm from Houston. Uh, everyone knows the big church in Houston. That church even stopped reaching. It, it stopped growing to an, at an astronomical rate, right? The one that meets where the basketball team used to meet and all that kind of stuff has a really smiley preacher. That one, like, it, it's, it eventually stopped, you know, it eventually stopped doing this, and now they're up here somewhere and maybe growing a little bit. But we're eventually going to run into the, to the all-dreaded, fearful plateau. And you have a decision to make in which you can build the entirety of your church growth, city-impacting philosophy, uh, philosophy upon your church continuing to grow. Or you can radically re-engineer what you're doing right now and say, we're going to be a reproducing church and a multiplying church. And by God's grace, we'll be able to do both. We'll continue to grow, and we'll be a resourcing church, and we'll do all of those things, but we're also going to be radically focused on reproducing, multiplying, raising up, sending out, 
and starting new churches. Why? Because church planting is one of the best ways that you can love your city beyond your lifetime. Think about it that way. It's one of the best ways that you can love your city beyond your lifetime. And what I mean by that is this. If you plant a if you become a church planting church, you then model what church planting churches look like to the guy that you send out that plants a church planting church. And he will then be equipped with the tools to then go plant a church planting church who will then also be able to plant a church planting church. You embed that DNA so deeply in who you are as a church right now and you start raising guys up that have that same heart, that same passion, that same desire. You start creating a legacy, a generational legacy of guys that plant churches, that plant churches, that plant churches. That sounds outrageous to you. That is exactly what we see in the New Testament era. These guys put an enormous amount of inertia, an enormous amount of movement and momentum, not only into their preaching ministry, not only into the church gathered and the church scattered and all of that stuff, but they put an enormous amount of inertia and momentum into raising up, grooming, developing, and sending church planters. You see that in the letters of the Apostle Paul, right? Homeboy is always talking to an entourage. Hey, send my love to this guy. Tell that, give that guy a holy kiss. Do this, do this, do this, right? And so you can be a great preacher. You can be a great leader. You can be a great pastor and sometimes not have guys that you're actually developing to replace you. And not only to re- replace you, but really that you want to be reproducing. And so the, the call is this. Be aggressive about it. Be aggressive about it. Be intentional about it. What does it look like to create the kind of momentum and movement in your church that's really going to love your city for a long time, long after you're dead? It's going gonna, it's gonna to involve church planning. It's going to involve reproducing yourself. It's going to involve uh, establishing a legacy creating a multiplying DNA in your church. I think, in this controversial statement of the day, go ahead and tweet it, I think creating a multiplying DNA in your church is better than focusing on growing your church bigger. Why? Because the plateau's coming. The plateau's coming. So church growth, if that becomes the engine through which you really want to love your city for a long, 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 long time. And I I have like behind-the-scenes conversations with some really influential pastors right now that are nearing their retirement, and they have the entire system built upon their personality and their preaching, and you know what they're saying? Uh Uh-oh. How are we going to do this? Right, Pastor? Having those conversations with some really, I mean, if I said their name, you'd be like, whoa. Like, they're seriously scratching their heads like, "Uh uh-oh, retirement's coming This entire thing is built upon me and my personality. I've tried to spin it this way for way too long, and now there's nobody around me that's as gifted as me, and so what am I going to do with all of these people? I'm going to have to maybe hive off smaller congregations, and so what are they doing? They are 25, 30 years into this very influential preaching ministry, and they're just now really strongly thinking about, "Uh uh-oh, what am I going to do now? And so think about that sooner. That's all I'm asking. And I know that might be controversial, but think about that. Pray about that sooner. Think about a multiplying DNA driving your church growth rather than a church growth DNA driving your church growth. Just think about that. Pray about that. Engage your leaders. Engage your elders. Engage your deacons. What does it look like for us to become a reproducing, multiplying church? Because history seems to prove that Movements, church planting movements, tend to create more lasting long-term impact in regions than one singular, large, resourcing, uh, you know, megachurch. So think about littering your city. Think about littering your region with dozens of churches, hundreds of churches by God's grace over the next 50, 100 years. All right. Now, how do we actually begin to, inst- I don't want to just lay this kind of why behind the what and not talk about how to, how to actually instill some of this multiplication DNA in your church because these breakouts are not just meant to be philosophical but practical. So how do we do it? 
Well, I've learned a few things um, in my time in pastoring Sojourn in Houston, and now uh, the role that I occupy at Living Stones as uh, executive lead pastor and director of church planting. Uh, some of these things are aspirational, meaning that we are just now beginning to focus on them. Some of these things are historical, meaning that they have been done before and have bore fruit. But talking about how to plant churches that plant churches is really an exercise in futility unless we are continually casting a clear and compelling vision for church planting in our churches. So the first thing we need to do is, and here's where it gets really practical, point number one, cast a clear and compelling vision for church planting. Continually. Continually. Uh, You were in the breakout sessions earlier. What were we talking about? Talk about money continually if you want people to grow in generosity and stewardship. If you want people to grow in their understanding of the importance of disciple-making through church planting, you have to talk about church planting as well, continually. So constantly casting a clear and compelling and biblical vision for starting new expressions of the local church all across our city, all across our state, all across our nation, all across our world. And, And here's the thing. Just like we don't assume that God will call forth his elect without actually preaching the gospel, we also shouldn't assume that God is going to call forth church planters out of our midst unless we stand up and say, some of you are going to be church planters. Your people need to hear that. Do you believe that? Hopefully in a church of 800, 2,000, there's at least 10 church planters in your midst that God will bring forth. Call them out. There is in this congregation right now, there are men that are going to go plant churches. There are men and women, families that are going to uproot their lives and go plant with them as a missionary team. Call them out. Call forth the church planters. And our vision for church planting needs to be continually communicated with conviction. And our congregation needs to be invited to pray for and participate in church planting efforts. So what do we desire our people to be all about? We need to be all about communicating, right? Over and over and over and over and over again. And if you only talk about church planting once a year, whenever Acts 29 asks you to do the church planting Sunday, it's probably not going to become part of your DNA. You'll celebrate it. They'll celebrate the videos and the slideshows and everything like that, but it really won't become part of the church's DNA. So whatever you want your church to be all about, you've got to be all about communicating over and over and over and over again. Our vision for church planting needs to be woven into our mission, values, and strategy. Our people need to hear us talk about our desire to plant churches all the time. And I mean all the time. So first, cast a clear and compelling vision, biblical vision, for the reason to plant churches in wherever it is that God has called you to plant them, in your city, in your state, in your region, in in the U.S., in strategic cities in the U.S., in global cities around the world, or in a particular region around the world, whatever it is that God has called you to do, then cast a clear and compelling vision for that continually. Second thing, uh, it was actually someone said that, uh, someone said that, you know, uh, culture eats systems alive, whoever that was, I don't remember who that was, but... It's actually, the, the quote is actually from Peter Drucker. It's cult, culture eats vision alive, right? So culture eats vision alive. And so it's not enough to just have a vision for church planting. You also have to create, foster, and nurture a culture for church planting. Kind of an ecosystem, if you will, where church planters and those that want to partner with church planters can emerge, grow, be nurtured, be fostered, be trained, be equipped, and then be sent out. So how do you create a culture in which church planting or becoming a church planting church is not only expected, but it's anticipated by your people. So that's a second step. First, cast a clear and compelling vision. Second, create a culture for church planting. Now, creating an ecosystem for church planters, church planting core teams, church planting partners to emerge and develop in your church is really contingent upon your ability to pound the table over a value system that is intrinsic to being able to reproduce and multiply. And that value system is simple. It's multiplication. If you're ever going to create, foster, nurture, and really create a macro culture, and culture, what I mean, simple definition is what most of the people do most of the time. 
or what most of the people get excited about and, and actually get behind most of the time. If you're ever going to create a culture in which church planting is not only um, welcomed, but it's anticipated and it's longed for by your people. So whenever you pull up that first church planting resident that you're going to send out, the congregation erupts in applause. And there are dollars behind them. And there are families standing at the bottom of the stage saying, we're going with them. If you want to get to that point to where that kind of culture was created, you have to embed in your church the value of multiplication. Because people don't like to say goodbye to people that they love. For whatever reason, it's really, really, and I know the social, psychological reasons, but for whatever reason, it is very difficult, even in the church, to get people excited about saying goodbye. And if you're actually going to create a church planting culture, then your people are going to have to get ready for living in a narrative of farewell. Meaning, there are going to be some people probably on your staff that they loved that's going to be going out to plant a church. There might be an influential community group leader and three or four families around that community group leader that comes forth and then they go plant a church. And church planting, becoming a church planting church can become very painful. I know this from my experience in planting in Houston. So we did plant daughter church and we sent out that first daughter church. Oh my goodness. I was not prepared for the amount of emotion that, that, that came with that. Now we had tons of positive emotion, but we also had tons of negative emotion. But if you don't do a good job of fostering a culture of multiplication early on in just about everything that you do, then all you're going to get when you get ready to send a guy out is negative emotion, not positive emotion as well. And what I mean by negative emotion is like, oh my gosh, this is too hard. I never want to do this ever, ever, ever again. So I'm convinced that many reasons church plants fail is uh, we really don't do a good job of fostering a culture in our churches in which it's a participatory event in which the entire community is engaged. We just find a guy, we send him out, we say, hey, here's Johnny, he's going to Timbuktu. We'll get a letter from him in about a year and we'll celebrate it. But, and then we send Johnny out there, you know, like a grand a month. Hopefully he'll get connected with other guys. It's not like it, it really emerged within this family system in which we celebrate and we long for and we support and we pray for and we give to Church planters. We always talk about how church planting is so lonely. I'll tell you what, when a church planter is sent out right from Mama Church, and Mama Church gets behind them, and Mama Church continues to stay behind them, and Mama Church, the people there really rally behind them, it's a whole lot less lonely because they know that they've got a massive family community back home praying for them, people coming to visit them, things like that. So instill the value of multiplication in your church early on. Must teach, model, expect, and celebrate multiplication is really a non-negotiable theological conviction. I mean, right, it's, it's in the cultural mandate, be fruitful and multiply. It's also embedded in the command of Jesus to make disciples, right? Because they were disciples, go make more disciples, and then do what? Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. What did Jesus just teach them? To go make disciples. And so... It, the, the value of multiplication really is a theological one, but you got to teach about it. you got to teach about multiplication regularly. If you really want to know how to embed multiplication in your DNA, you got to teach about it regularly. you got to model it. Model multiplication and personal disciple-making and leadership development. And not only do you got to model it yourself, but you've got to expect leaders and members to multiply as well. Multiply disciples. Multiply community groups. When you create a culture in which people are multiplying themselves and they're multiplying community groups, then multiplying a church plant isn't all that big of a surprise to them. Like, oh, this is just what we do. It's just on a bigger scale. We're a church that raises up and sends out. So teach it, model it, expect it, celebrate it when multiplication occurs. And then as it pertains to church planting specifically in regards to multiplication, communicate your vision for church planting as a natural outcome of being a healthy church. Communicate your vision for church planting as a natural outcome of being a healthy church. And what do we mean by that? Plain and simple, healthy organisms, which the church is, 
It, it's, it's a living and breathing temple, right? She's alive. Healthy organisms reproduce. Healthy churches reproduce. Healthy disciples reproduce. Healthy, and I'm talking biologically here, healthy families reproduce, not emotionally or psychologically, right? There's nothing wrong in the wiring, if you will. Healthy families reproduce. Healthy organisms reproduce. So tell your, your church always, if, for us to be a healthy church, this is what it looks like. We're going to raise up new churches and we're going to send them out. And, and, and you guys that are here are going to be a part of that. Cast that kind of vision. Never stop planting new churches. Now, the next part of creating a culture, and then I will move on. Is that clock right, by the way? Okay, we're good. Um, the next thing in regards to creating a culture is not only to teach multiplication, model multiplication, expect multiplication, all of those things, um, but you also have to regularly invite and urge people to consider their role in church planting. And what I mean by that is this. Are they, are they a lead church planter? Like, don't, don't set up church planting as if it's something that only the super spiritual do all by themselves, right? Um, that's certainly not the way the Apostle Paul did. I mean, he rolled in with teams, at least in pairs. So don't, don't set it up like if it's something that just a solo person does and they've got a cape on and everything. Like, make it a communal endeavor. So in doing that, you've got to ask people to consider their role in church planting. Are they the lead church planter? Or are they a supporter of church planting? And if they're a supporter of church planting, what does that look like? Maybe they go and they actually join the church planter in establishing the new church. Or maybe they're going to give more aggressively to your efforts in church planting to see to it that this church planter is funded well. Or maybe they're just going to commit to intercessory prayer. And you actually create a prayer ministry around your church planters, your residents and your church planters that are currently out on the field. So invite and urge people constantly to consider their role in church planting. Don't just call forth church planters. Call forth church planting partners. Invite people into that. Invite people into the drama, if you will, of leaving a long-term lasting gospel legacy in your city, region, country, or world. Give them something much bigger to live for. And again, I know I'm kind of standing on the plank with some of these statements. I'll even stand here if, if it, to, to make my point, but um, invite them to participate in more than what's happening at your church. Invite them to participate in, particip in the kingdom of God by planting more churches. Right? Don't narrow the scope of here's what it means to be a faithful Christian to just what's happening in your church. Talk about the, what it means to be a faithful Christian is really to have a heart for what God is doing throughout the world with his church and talk about how church planning is a means to that end and how they can partner with, uh, with one another in that. Because the first is cast a clear and compelling vision continually. Second is create a culture, namely a culture of multiplication from the top all the way down, from the, from the bottom all the way back up to the top. And then the third thing is to craft a simple and sustainable strategy for church planting. So the last little bit is going to be just on nuts and bolts of um, actually raising up church planters and sending them out. So casting vision, creating culture is the work of inspiring your people. However, inspiration does little to no good without execution. Actually, it does no good. Uh, initially, it seems nice, warm, and fuzzy, but it does no good without execution. So how do you actually execute a church planting uh, strategy? How do you not only cast vision and create culture, how do you actually plant churches? Well, the first thing I would say to you is you need to figure out what kind of churches you're going to plant. Are you going to plant like satellite churches, campus churches? And if so, is there a long-term, and again, is there a long-term sustainable strategy for that that outlives you? Right? So I'm all for multi-site. We're going to be talking about that here in a minute. It's going to be so fun. I am all for multi-site. What I have a problem with, though, is whenever it, it stops with the preacher. And, and it's not thought beyond what happens beyond the life of this preacher. 
So if you're going to go multi-site, already be thinking about, and even if you're going to go video venue, right, because you maybe you got all the arguments, you're an extremely gifted preacher, more influence comes that way, I understand all of that, but do you, are, are you already thinking about and praying about how we're going to wean people off of that eventually, because that's going to have to happen? Are we praying through that? Are we considering that? Are we thinking beyond not just five years, ten years, but can we actually, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, engage thoughts at 15 years, at 20 years? And, and who knows, you know, always the argument, you could fall off a subway platform, I guess only if you're visiting New York or Boston or something like that, and then get run over. There's no subway platforms in Texas. Uh, there is the Metro Rail in Houston, which that has cut some people's legs off, but that's neither here nor there. Um, just don't, don't trip in front of the Metro Rail, that's all I could say. Um, but, right, so there's always the inevitable, you don't know, right? Our life is but a vapor, you don't know. So if you're going multi-site, Try and build it on something a little, bit, a little bit more sustainable than just the preaching platform. What does it look like for our multi-campuses or whatever to actually themselves have a vision for being multiplying churches? That kind of thing. So figure out what kind of church you're going to plant. Are you going to plant, you know, like a replica version of your church? Not a bad thing at all. Um, that's what we did at Sojourn in Houston. All of our churches that we were planting were Sojourn churches. Same vision, values, DNA, all of that. Where are you going to plant them? When are you going to plant them? Who's going to plant them? What kind of guy are you looking for as a, as a lead church planner? How do you want to send out church planning core teams? You can't just say we're going to plant churches all across the world without actually having a strategy in mind. So if you're going to do, uh, and this is, a, this is a model, it's a methodology in church planning. If you're going to do city saturation, which is we're just going to focus on planting churches in this city, or that's going to be our primary focus, then that's going to require a certain kind of strategy. If you're going to plant churches in other cities, then that's going to require a certain kind of strategy. If you're going to plant churches in global context, then that's going to require a certain kind of strategy. And I just want a word to the wise, uh, like pick one or two at most. Don't try and do three or four different church planting strategies and philosophies because what you'll ultimately end up with is doing a bunch of things fairly well rather than doing one or two things really well. So pick. So at Sojourn, it was pretty simple. At, at Living Stones, because we are a regional church, it's a little bit more complicated, but we're getting more simple. At Sojourn, it was pretty simple. It was we plant about 5 to 6% of all of our church planting dollars go to planting other Sojourn churches in and around the downtown Houston area. And then the rest of our church planting dollars went to funding and partnering with uh, men in European context. That was it. Uh, Living Stones is different because, like I said, we're a regional hub church. We've got a lot of regional responsibilities for Acts 29 on the West Coast. But we are planting other Living Stones churches. And we are also going to be aggressively, through our new regional plan, we're going to be aggressively planting other churches in the Acts 29 West region. And then we're just going to be funding guys overseas with a portion of our budget. But it's a strategy. So figure out your strategy. Um, and then figure out how within that strategy, what does it look like for you to actually reproduce? If you're going to reproduce guys in a local context, that's going to look a lot different. If you're going to reproduce guys that are going to like go, say, from Dallas uh, to plant in Boston, Massachusetts, that's going to look a little bit different, how you would train and equip those guys, what kind of tools you would put in their hands. If you're going to be raising up guys that are from the United States and you're going to try and plant them in a global context, then you're going to need a lot more robust training, right? You're going to have to train those guys on cross-cultural contextualization and uh, do they know the language. And you have to think about all of that kind of stuff, too. So figure out what your church planting strategy is and then move forward as to what does it look like to now raise up church planters within that strategy, within that philosophy. So how, then, do we train church planters? Um, we got we got to plan what kind of churches are we going to plant. Now the big question is how, then, do we train church planters? And this is going to be super quick um, because of time. I'm just going to give you the bullet points, but my contact information is up there. I'll send you these notes, and I'll not only send you these notes, I'll send you anything else that I have written on this as well to date uh, as far as raising up church planters and sending them out. And uh, just so you know, uh, there is a little bit more expertise in this um, that that I, I, I can help and kind of guide in before I planted Sojourn. I also work for Africa Inland Mission uh, early on in uh, my ministry and helping them plant churches in southern Africa. And so this really is in my wheelhouse, uh, church planting. And so any kind of questions, you can just hit me up. And uh, Sorry, that was wild. Uh, I will try my best to help you um, 
in the capacity that God has assigned to me. So um, I'll do whatever I can. But I'm going to go through these relatively quick, so please forgive me for not elaborating. Um, elaboration is sometimes a bad thing anyway. So how do we train church planters? First is you have to figure out the ecosystem or the training method that you actually want to train them with. Uh, I've, I'm a big fan of residencies, um, uh, two-year residencies in particular that was what we're using. Um, and there are different tiers to those residencies, different objectives that we have in the residencies, but I'm a big fan of church planning residencies. And so that's pretty much what I'm going to speak on because it's what I can speak on with the most fidelity. Um, so one of the ways in which you can train a church planner is you can establish a church planning residency. And that's where if you're not doing it currently, that's where I would encourage you to consider starting. Um, but really starting a church planning residency is not necessarily related to your size or budget. It has more to do with your capacity, your energy, and your desire to develop church planners. And I can say this because, again, as a church of, uh, I don't know how old Sojourn was when we planted our first church, maybe two years old, um, we reproduced ourselves, and it was a healthy reproduction. Uh, it wasn't like one of those shotgun things where it's like, hey, man, go. We'll just throw money at you and a couple people and hope that you make it. Uh, it, was, it was a healthy reproduction. And so um, it has more to do with desire to develop and the capacity of you to develop than it does um, size or budget, if you will. And so a question you have to ask yourself is, do you actually want to start a church planning residency? And then do you have the capacity or the margin in your time to train church planners? And if not, I would ask you to consider two exhortations. Number one, um, still call forth church planters and see to it that they, are, that they are coming up. And if you don't have the capacity to do a church planning residency, just take them under your wing and kind of treat them like Paul did to Timothy. Just make them your protege for a while. Let them shadow you. Right? If you don't have the capacity to go full on, like we're going to start a program, just start developing guys as a pastor and then see what happens. Um, but I would say you should probably do everything that you could to try and increase your capacity so that way you could actually establish more of a formal ecosystem or greenhouse in which guys can come up and they know what to expect from you and all of those things. Um, so first is just figuring out how, when do you want to establish a, a formal church planting system. Second, how do you actually enlist a church planting resident? Well, this goes back to one of my initial statements. Um, you really have to foster a culture in which you're, you're constantly creating multiplication and you're calling forth church planners. You're just calling them out. Um, but once you've actually got guys that are interested in church planting, and because it's kind of a heroic, noble thing to do these days, you'll probably have far more people interested in it than need to be, um, if you know what I mean. Uh, and, and so you'll actually have to have some sort of proce process in place to assess them. And uh, I would highly recommend that you assess them within the context of your local church, meaning were they faithful already there? Uh, have they served a long time? Do they have tenure? If they don't, what was their experience in other churches? Can you call their old pastor? Can you check their record? Can you validate whether or not they were faithful, whether or not they were gifted, whether or not they were competent? So do everything that you possibly can to assess them before you ever admit them into the residency. Let me say this. Do not ever admit a guy into a church planting that you think will take a miracle to get them through to the end. Now, do I believe in miracles? Absolutely. I read the New Testament, believe everything in it. Read the Old Testament, believe everything in it too, even though sometimes some of the miracles are a bit audacious, right, um, and bold. But uh, taking a guy that has never, ever, ever preached a sermon, and then the one time that you checked his preaching ability, it, it, he, he sat up there with fear and trembling, and, and, and there was a puddle of sweat there, and not a single point made sense. He's never served in a community group, and he has a bad marriage. Do not let that guy into your residency, Right? Just be like, nope, sorry, man, uh, come around second lap, right? Uh, five years, give him some more time. Like, you know, something like that. Don't, don't make the bar of commitment low enough that you can actually develop guys, right? You're not looking for all-stars day one, but make the bar high enough that you're not going to be just admitting any old guy into your residency that you're eventually going to have to kick out. Now, sometimes I will let guys in on just like a, mm, but I'm ready and willing and prepared to have hard conversations with them really quickly if need be. So, so enlisting church planning residents, call them forth and assess them. Um, second thing, I would say make sure that they are trained and tested inside the systems and ministries of your church. 
See to it that they're faithful. See to it that they have served diligently, that they are hard workers. See to it and actually put feedback loops around them to see what people are saying about them. Are people saying, man, this guy is a really hard worker and he really loves his wife and he's a faithful giver and he's a servant and he's all of these things. And, and man, whenever he, whenever he leads our community group or whenever he does this, like people really listen and they're engaging. If you have a bunch of negativity around a guy and everything like that, then, then you probably want to um, go a little bit slower with them. But do the hard work of assessing early on. Another thing you'll have to do in, in establishing a church planning residency is you're going to have to have a plan to equip these guys. You have to decide what you want for education um, or to equip them with. What learning content, what books, what training manuals, what videos, what conferences, what venues do you want to use to equip your residents? The third thing you'll have to do in establishing a church planning residency or a formal church planning training program is you want to do... You want to empower your church planning residents. Um, you want to give them room to grow as leaders. But you have to create venues for them to actually exercise gifting and test their calling, right? One of the worst things that I see guys do with church planning residents is make them glorified interns. Right? They're just pushing paper around. And I, and I get that that's a great way to test their faithfulness, but also you have to think about what does it look like to actually test this guy to see whether or not he can preach, whether or not he can lead people, whether or not he can actually inspire a group towards mission. So you've actually got to create some sort of venues in which you can, you can assess that, test that, look at that, watch for that, and then challenge that, nurture that, ch- you know, encourage them in that, and constantly come back around and talk, talk to them about areas that they're strong and areas that they're weak, areas where God has clearly gifted them and areas where he hasn't. So that way, if you do end up sending them out as a church planning resident, they're very aware of where their deficiencies are, and that's very helpful for them. So in establishing formal church planning residencies, uh, equip them, empower them, and then the last thing you want to do is you want to constantly be evaluating church planning residents. Evaluation should be regular. It should be rhythmic. You know what a spontaneous evaluation feels like? A criticism, right? It doesn't feel like a critique. (laughs) It doesn't feel very encouraging. It doesn't feel loving. It feels mean. So when you're training a guy for church planning ministry, one of the things you want to do is you want to be evaluating their progress constantly. Like create regular evaluations, regular times to sit down. With our residents, I meet with them once a month, Face-to-face, tell them what's up, tell them what's good, tell them what's bad. And then we also have a formal evaluation every trimester, every three or four months, where I basically assess their progress and assess whether or not they should go forward anymore. And if they shouldn't go forward, then I do have the hard conversation as quickly as I possibly can and try and give them a plan as to what it might look like in the future for them to re-engage or whether or not they really shouldn't consider re-engaging in church planting. So you want to equip, you want to empower You want to evaluate your church planning residents regularly, ongoing, rhythmically. And again, you have to discern whether or not you actually have the capacity and the desire to do that right now. And if not, I encourage you to try and get there as quickly as God's Spirit would allow you to. Now, very quickly, and then I'll open it up for questions because we don't have long. Um, How do you send a church planter? So we do a great job of assessing. We do a great job of affirming. We don't do a great job of actually raising up, calling forth, and honestly, we struggle as a network sometimes to send as well. So what does it look like to send a church planner? There are three things you got to th- think through primarily. Number one, people. Number two, money. And number three, ongoing care. Number one, people. Number two, money. And number three, ongoing care. If you're going to send out a church planner... And if you want to increase the hope of sustainability, you have to cast a vision for planting that's really infused with a communal value. Uh, Of course, it's going to be easier to send a community of people to plant a church if your church planting strategy is focused on a geographic area that's kind of close to home, you know? It'd be easier to mobilize a core team to go to the next neighborhood rather than to go to four states over, you know, or uh, across the country entirely. But nonetheless, you do want to try and create, I believe, a a healthy church planning culture in which you're not only sending a solo church planner, but you're willing to and uh, able to send teams of people with them. Now, we'll talk about the money piece here in a second. I'm not talking about funding an entire core team, that's for sure. Um, But I am talking about, whenever possible, sending teams of people 
with church planters to go because statistically that shows that even if you can send a church planter with two families or three families to a new context, the sustainability factor increases pretty significantly. You don't want to just send them over there like, hey man, go over there, not sending you anyone else. Um, Do everything you can to try and think of ways and get creative and inspire people to go with them. Now, the second thing is money. Um, so did I hear it? Oops. Oh, sorry. Um, the second thing is money. Now, this is one of the most common obstacles when talking about church planning with pastors. It takes money to plant new churches. Not everyone understands how to fund churches or how to fund church planners. Here are a few things to consider. Um, we found, and can, I think statistics bear witness to this, give a lot to a little rather than a little to a lot. When it comes to funding a church planner, Fund fewer planters with more money rather than more planters with little money. Quality trumps quantity in this scenario. We should be looking for depth of impact rather than breadth of influence when it comes to church planting, sending a guy into a new community. And it's best to be outrageously generous with a few people than moderately moderately supportive of many. So give a lot to a little rather than a little to a lot. Number two, plan on aggressively funding for at least 36 months, or at least three years. All right, a lot of our church planning fund, funding strategies are like, we're going to give you 12 months, bro. Hope you make it. Um, that's okay. Some guys do. That was my situation. We made it. We made it okay. Um, but if you're sending guy to a context that's like farther away from where you're at um, than closer like it's more of a transplant or a parachute plant situation, um, do whatever you can to aggressively fund them for at least 36 months. Now, this doesn't mean that you fully fund a planter. As a matter of fact, another thing that I would say is never fully fund a planter. Fund them at 50 to 70%. Why? Make him prove that he can actually raise funds. That's a good rule of thumb. Don't just give a guy the farm. Say, hey, man, we're going to give you, like, all of this money. You go plant a church, and then it's going to be awesome. I'm like, no. See whether or not they can actually have a conversation across the table, cast vision, and raise money. Fund them for 50 60 70%, if even that. Who knows? Depending, again, upon your capacity. Um, if he's not a compelling fundraiser, he probably won't make a very compelling church planner. Now, if you're trying to plant a guy in a context that's like right next door to yours, you may not have to fund them for that long. But if you're trying to, again, plant a guy that's kind of geographically distant, then you need to plan on funding for a while. The third thing about money, encourage more church planters. This is a big one, to be bivocational. One of the reasons why we can't get many churches planted is because now every church planter feels entitled to full-time salary. Day one before they've even proven anything. So encourage more guys to go bivocational. Encourage them to be bivocational until the church plant outgrows the living room. Then say, all right, we can get behind that. You got some chops. We'll put some substantial dollars behind you. Maybe you give them a little bit just to get them into the community and stuff like that, but then you really ramp up your aggressive funding uh, after they've kind of proven themselves in a bivocational manner. And uh, I, I really, really am in growing more and more convicted about this, that not only is bivocational a good and better sustainable financial solution, but it's also a good and better and sustainable missional solution if a guy's going into a new context. It's really good if a guy can actually just work a job in a community first before he actually comes in and says, hey, I'm here to save this place. Like, when you work in the local economy, you kind of gr- gain even more credibility as a local, and that's really important in church planting. All right, last thing, ongoing support. Once you uh, send people, send dollars, what does it look like for you to have ongoing support system for the church planners that you send out? Um, Is there an ecosystem where they can have ongoing prayer, pastoral care, counseling? Um, If it's true that church planting is a lonely endeavor, again, it certainly doesn't have to be. Uh, The Apostle Paul clearly stayed connected to those he sent out to plant churches. He was a father to him. So what does it look like to father the church planners that you send out? What does it look like to stay connected to them in that kind of relationship where there's intimacy, there's trust, there's resourcing, there's communication? Uh, One of the things that I honestly have loved the most about raising up and sending out church planters is the relationship. 
Like, you know, we had to move from Houston because of autoimmune disorders. That part wasn't shared, but I, that's the reason why we had to move to Reno because of my health. But one of the things that I've loved the most is actually seeing a lot of the guys that I coached and even sent out here at this conference. Um, it's just a joy. It's a joy to still have that kind of relationship with them. So what does it look like for your church to not only engage with them financially and with people, but what does it look like for your church to continue to engage with your church planters in relationship, to stay connected to them, um, to celebrate them, not just on the Sunday you send them out, but to celebrate them regularly? And that's it. I think we're running low on time, but we'll take questions as much as we possibly can. Pastor Sam. We have seven now, uh, about to have a hard conversation with one. We'll have six. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, we do not pay them. Uh, we ask that they work a job. It's a bivocational residency. Um, so year one is primarily focused on just embedding in the church. And leading small groups, multiplying small groups, coaching small groups, just kind of a plan, uh, a hope of trajectory for us to assess that and then give them a few small preaching opportunities, college ministry, things like that. Um, and then if they are, the, that's a big evaluation at the end of year one, see whether or not they go into year two. And if they go into year two, um, that's whenever we're actually training them and equipping them to aggressively get ready to launch a church. And at that point, we will allow them to apply for a stipend um, to kind of help them prepare a little bit if they need to. Like if, if their job, their employment is just too much. Um, but the training is honestly kind of light because the expectation coming in is you're pretty much already the qualification of a deacon, if not close to that of an elder. And so in year one, we're just doing supplemental learning and personal coaching and things like that and then giving them preaching ops. But no, we don't fund them. Yes. Yeah. In, in, the, in the first year, they're doing that. They're, they're operating as a member of the church. They're, they've got a job. They've got the family. They've got that stuff. And then, like I said, we're mainly doing supplemental learning. It's not very aggressive. I only meet with them two times a month um, and then have feedback loops around them. Um, and then I have them kind of involved in my life to speak into that. We have them do reports, assessments, things like that. Um, because I, it's, I, I tell them, like, year one is... You're in, kind of. Year two, we're 100% behind you, and then it gets a little bit more aggressive. Year one is really, it's like a, a year-long assessment, honestly. So first part of, uh, like, the, the first half of year one, little to none of that. Again, like that's even more aggressive assessment and evaluation. Um, as time goes on, they get access into more and more of that stuff. They will have access into more and more of that stuff. When I was at Sojourn, the guys that we had in the residency, by the time they were in their second year, um, they were in every elder meeting. I mean, they sat on the outside of the circle and weren't allowed to talk unless they had a good question at the end. But that's, that's how we, we let them see how the elders interacted and all of that. So. Yes, sir. About four hours a week. Ryan, where's Ryan? About four hours a week extra-ish, which is like reading and things like that. And then coaching, about four hours a week. Probably about eight, eight to ten. Yeah. Yes. Yes, sir. We still have that document, don't we? Okay, so Ryan, who's one, uh, he assists Harvey and I asked him to just go through practical stuff for year one, year two. So year one, um, like I said, it's really about assessment because you, one of the most important things you can do for a guy is assess them well, right? Um, and so 
essentially you've done a pre-assessment of just have they been a faithful Christian and uh, to some degree a faithful Christian leader. In the first year, it is really about assessment of their leadership period in the local church um, and some competencies around the nuances of church planting, preaching, teaching, you know, organizational leadership, shepherding, all of that kind of stuff on a macro level. So one of the things that we do is uh, I meet with them two, two times a month, um, both on Sunday afternoons because they are full-time employees of different places or, or things like that. I meet with them on Sunday afternoons in between our morning and evening gatherings for about an hour and a half on average, two times a month. I meet with them on the first Sunday and I meet with them on the third Sunday. So it's kind of rhythmic. They can expect it. First Sunday, which one do we do first? Do we do the learning? on? Yeah. Um, so the first Sunday of the month, uh, we do what we call like a little learning cohort. It's an hour and a half of really just talking about uh, what does it mean to, uh, to, to grow as a church planner in a specific competency. I, I give them a book to read that's focused on one of our competencies. And then we, we discuss that competency in community with one another, challenge one another, encourage one another. It's really, I'm, I'm just seeing how they interact with material because how a person actually interacts with the book will tell you a lot about where they're at in their development, honestly. Um, it, theologically, you know, competencies, those kinds of things. And then the second time that we meet a month on the third Sunday, uh, that's whenever I do actually like a like more of a lecture-based, here's something that's really pertinent for you to know, take notes. And then I meet with them again uh, for coaching sessions throughout the month. But uh, it's, it's really, the learning is like we don't try and overload the guys because, again, I won't even let a guy into the residency unless he pretty much knows his way around the Bible. Residency for me is not meant to be a theological enterprise. Residency is all about training for church planting competency and leadership. If they don't know their Bible, they have no business being a resident just yet, right? That's kind of where I'm at with it is if you don't know your Bible, you don't know your theology, or you're really, really, really weak at that, um, and you can't effectively teach God's words as an elder in the local church, then uh, this residency is not designed to equip you with deep theology. This residency is designed to refine what you already know and prepare you as a church planter. So that's why a lot of our guys are already, uh, like half of our guys are already elders or elder candidates in our church. So we got to go. All right, so any other questions, anything like that, send emails, send whatever. Um, I will do everything I can to get you guys the information. So.